I feel like it's not that hard to not be a sexual sociopath serial killer. And I feel like a lot of times people want us to believe it's hard to not not be that thing. They also want to meddle when they don't kill everyone. Like, mm, I'm <laughs> yeah. not really subscribing to any of this. No medals. No fucks and no medals. No. I got nothing to give you today. <laughs> Hi, Julia Bezzavalli. Hello, Patrick Hines. Hi, America and international community. How's everyone doing what? today? <laughs> Who are you? I don't know. What's going on? I'm mixing it up. You guys, we're recording on a Monday. Look, it's in the past, but you guys are in the future. We've already done Broadway, but where we are, Broadway's a week from this minute. Uh-huh. I'm tired. Yeah. I'm real tired. I'm kind of grumpy. Kind of? It's yeah. a whole. Uh, there's a whole lot happening today. I will say that. There's just a lot going on. Listen, you're no ray of sunshine over there on the east side either, Pink. Care. Wow. <laughs> wow. But I'm just saying, we got it. We got to power through. We're so tired. And it's two eighteen. This is so much earlier. Everything is thrown off. I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> I don't even need my ring light. It's so bright in this room. Like, what is happening? I know. What are we doing? You guys, I'm going to mention it real quick. Come see us on tour: Chicago, Seattle, Los Angeles, Boston. That's way out of order. Definitely not in that order. <laughs> not even close. L.A. is always the last one. I know that. L.A. is always the last. We're doing Class Action Park. It's going to be super fun. It's going to be super funny. TrueComeObsessed.com. Click on the CS Live link. Come to Obsessed Fest September through like the first couple days of October in Columbus, Ohio. Yeah, which means that we're starting spooky season October 1st in Columbus, Ohio at Obsessed Fest. So thank you so much for planning that around my <laughs> schedule. Appreciate it. Anything I can do. Thanks. Spooky season is very important to me. So thank you. No, same. I look and there's nowhere I'd rather be than Columbus to celebrate the spook season. Thank you for caring about me and my spooky season and my needs. All right, girl, what are we talking about today? Oh, God. Uh, yeah. Memories of a Murderer, the Nielsen tapes on good old Netflix. You know, I'm always resistant to these documentaries that are the anything tapes, and I I, real, I put I my finger on it today. I don't want to hear these people talk the entire hour and a half. I know, especially someone as pretentious as this asshole. He's yes. the worst. <laughs> One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I think this recording machine might be under some kind of strain. Speech oscillates from one speaker to the next. Anyway, let's begin the recording proper. Nielsen went round swooping up vulnerable young men. Well, we've all got to die of something, haven't we? Normally, in a murder case, you'll have a victim. Then you will go looking for the murderer. In this case, we had a murderer, but he didn't know who the victims were. At one stage, there was no room under the floorboards. So there were so many bodies there. Silence, silence, silence. It is a tale beyond comprehension. The time is coming. I am the harbinger of death. I remember, I remember. It is a great heart to be considered to be monstrous. I am not a monster. I am a man. Awkward, isn't it? So it starts with him talking into a recorder and he's talking about how like the sound is oscillating from one side to another. He's annoyed. I'm annoyed. Well, he's also smoking, I, which neither of us love. We got to talk about how cushy these fucking British jail situations are. We'll get there when we get there. What on earth? What on earth? And then he coughs and he goes, <laughs> oh, dear. 
Oh, dear. (laughs) (laughs) And then he's also complaining about his coverage in the press. And he's like, yes, I committed murder. Okay, everything else is fiction. The minute you hear murder, everyone gets real judgy. And I'm like, yeah. Well, it opens in London. It's 1983. We meet Steve McCusker, I think is how you say it. He's a detective inspector. He says, I remember the day because it was cold and miserable outside. To which I said, isn't that just London weather? Dreamy. I Mm, know. Dreamy. I know. Steve McCusker gets a phone call about Cranley Gardens and some suspected human remains that were found in a manhole. Correct. Ah. Cranley Gardens, is a, it's like a neighborhood, not a drag name. No, not yet anyway. Not yet. The thing about this situation, you guys, this is like Sondheimian English musical theater shit. Wow. When we got there, the tenants were standing around the manhole. The toilets had been blocked and that engineer had been called to clear the drains. And he discovered huge amounts of flesh and bone. When they dug out what was clogging up the drains, it was literally bone and flesh. My jaw, I was watching this at 4 a.m. My jaw hit the table at that description. Yeah, we also get this guy, Nielsen, because he admits it and is very proud of it all. This is not a mystery as to who did this. Yes. The tenants said that at midnight, the night before, they heard this scraping noise. And so they opened the door to go, like, see what the fuss was all about. Like, what is all that racket? And they're like, it's the guy from upstairs. He's outside. It's freezing cold. He's wearing a vest. And he's like, don't mind me. I'm just out here peeing. And they asked him if he was all right. And he said, I am. I've just been outside for a pee. I've just been outside for a pee. (laughs) That's it. Just a wee pee. That's all. Upon like investigation, the detectives determined that the bones that were clogging up these people's like drinking water and shit were human. Yeah. And they also say like, you guys, there's no other word for it. The flesh that was like clogging up the drains was so fresh that the cops could like literally see strangulation marks on the flesh. Yes. So they're immediately like, let's go into your house, crazy. Like, let's go into your apartment. (laughs) So they go into his apartment and the cops are just like stop messing about where's the rest of the body and he looked at me and he pointed to the wardrobe where's the rest of this body what's happening and he just points to the wardrobe like it's nothing literally he answers the question the rest of the body's in the wardrobe i said they go to the wardrobe and they open it and and weirdly don't find narnia it's an english literature joke (laughs) narnia Instead, they find literally two trash bags full of human remains. Right. So McCusker is like grabbing him by his collar, hauls him downtown to the station if they do that over Uh in England. And he's like, you're arrested on suspicion of murder. And I'm like, suspicion. Yeah, at the very least, suspicion of murder. You actually know where the bodies are buried. McCusker asks the guy en route. In the car on the journey to the police station, I was asked. Are we talking about one body or two here? I immediately replied with... 15 or 16. It made the hair on the back of my neck stand up. Dennis Nielsen, the killer, replies 15 or 16. And he said, the cop who's driving the car who heard this exchange almost drove off the road. Right, because when he he realizes, McCusker's like, those garbage bags were gigantic. There's definitely more than one body there. So like, oh, one or two. And he goes, "Ah, closer to 15. What? 
oh my God, that's so yeah. scary. But of course, they're like, do we even believe this guy? Like, what's happening? It's very crazy. And then, like, as the title indicates, this whole thing is being, like, intercut with tapes of Nielsen providing his own narration for what happens. In describing going to the police station, he writes, I climb down a long corridor with my escort, and I'm lodged in the first cell at the end of the line. I am deposited there in this antiquated room with a small bench and rough, upright, small stool of a table. I sit there, light up a cigarette, and pause. Shut the fuck up, Nielsen. I can't shut up. <laughs> I can't listen to this for the next 90 minutes. With your stupid, like, jailhouse cigarette, shut up. But like he's allowed cigarettes in prison. This doesn't make any fucking sense to me. Like Well, I don't know if he's allowed. I mean, you can trade, you can make things. I you guess, know. but like remember, I mean, at one point we see him with like playing the keyboard. Like his his cell is carpeted. He gets weed eventually. Yeah. <laughs> so there's that too. And one of these, this English inmate got afternoon tea. Remember that? Yes. I'm all for prison reform, but it's gotten too good, if you ask me. I just feel like there's got to be a balance. Like, if the guy (laughs) did it and he's talking about it, can we not give him, like, a Casio keyboard in the 80s? That was, like, (laughs) such a big get. It'd be like getting an iPhone today. You could, like, hit a button and the bossa nova would just play. Exactly, Girl from Ipanema. (laughs) That was the only thing. That was the most exotic track on that Casio keyboard. So as we've learned over there, they can only keep them for 48 hours. So you Uh have to get everything you can out of the guy in that amount of time. But you can't push too hard or else he'll shut up, right? Or so they thought. But no worries. Because Husker's like, this (laughs) dude would not stop talking. Yet again, we have a talker. We got a talker. The cops are like, so how do you find your victims, right? You're saying you have 15 or 16 of them. And he literally says, I'm going to speak to someone. Take them back to his flat. They would be drinking, they'd be listening to music. The following morning, Nilsson would wake up and there would be a dead body beside him. Bada bing, bada boom. Next thing in the, I would know I would wake up next to a naked dead body and I had no idea what happened. And this is when I'm like, oh, fuck, this guy is gay. Like, that yep. was, I how, I don't know how I've never heard of this killer before. Yeah, he's pretty famous. I hate to say it. Oh, I had hate you heard of him? Any credit or any, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh. So normally the cops are saying like you have a victim and then you go looking for the murderer. But in this case, uh-huh. we have a murderer and we're looking for like 15 victims and the cops don't even know who the victims are. So Nielsen is like, we, we hear him talking more and he's like, no other British murderer has been as forthright. I was like, so you are saying you're bragging about being the most forthright and you want a medal for that? Again, I say I'm out of medals and I'm out of fucks. Nielsen, you got none. The John Wayne Gacy of it all. It's, it's almost like a copy cat situation. But at least he's saying I absolutely did it instead of Uh Casey being like I was framed I didn't do it like there's something about where it's like well if you're gonna talk can you give us something valuable so we can get some justice or some closure to these families at least you piece of shit yeah and then like the cops start asking very obvious questions that only they wouldn't know the answers to like where on earth in London could you go where 15 or 16 young men wouldn't be noticed it's like it was the same in the US with the John Wayne Casey of it all like had such blinders to the gay community that of course they would not even know how on earth 15 or 16 young men could go missing and nobody would notice exactly exactly until the press gets a hold of it but hold on we're not there yet. yeah but douglas bents from the daily mirror he's sitting at work minding his own business oh my god and then he gets a notice that a plumber found human remains in a drain so douglas boop, 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 calls up scotland yard they know nothing about it he's like i'm gonna go ahead and write that story anyway and he's like but you have to be careful 
but there was resistance to the story being used because in those days you never really wanted to upset people over the breakfast table. And there's no doubt that the reality of Catran's discoveries would make people dry heave over their cornflakes. You don't, as he says, want people to dry heave <laughs> in their, their cornflakes. Corn Thanks, Doug. <laughs> Priorities. This guy definitely knows how to not get cut out of a documentary. You know what I mean? Right. Totally. And so does Bill Hamilton, but not really in the best way. BBC correspondent Bill. Because he's guy. like, look, I've seen it all. He goes, I just said, you know, it's a pretty mundane story. And I'm like, Bill, he's like, what, a murderer and bodies are found in the drains? Like, if I'm lucky, I'll get a cool five minutes on the six o'clock news. What a snooze fest, whatever. And I'm like, Bill, because then Bill's like, whoa, wait, but then I heard there are 15 or 60 victims. Now we're talking. Right. All right. I, I literally wrote, Bill, contain your excitement, girl. This is another one of those examples where every single person interviewed from like the newspaper people who covered it to like some family members of the victims are like, it was really disturbing, but also totally exciting. The amount of times I hear the word exciting here is alarming. It's, <laughs> it's fucking what? alarming. I know. I know. Bill's like, in some ways, this sounds awful, but I had that great flow of adrenaline at the time. I have to <laughs> admit, you know, I was totally transfixed on this. Bill! No, Bill. No. Nielsen is like, look, I didn't talk to anybody but the cops. I was a steel trap. And these are the tapes he's making to write his own autobiography. So he fully acknowledges that he's like a rapist murderer. But like with a heart of gold who's just <laughs> severely misunderstood. The serial killer with a heart of gold, please. Well, and please. he is on the front, like instantly on the front page of every paper. Oh yeah, of course. Can we talk about Karen, please? Because I like Karen. <laughs> I call her Constable Karen. Constable Karen, but she's with a K. Karen with a K. Karen Hunt, yeah. Karen really has been traumatized by this story. I would be too. I know, but like 35 years later, she is not over it. Right. So she gets there and she's like, I like gets to the scene where they know that there are bodies have been discovered and there are at least like 14 more that they're looking for. So Karen goes to the scene at this apartment. But we got the call from the detective chief inspector who said, right, everybody in, everybody in. We will go down to Melrose Avenue. We'll be briefed there. Bear in mind, we didn't know what we were going to walk into there. There was no prep. We were the first wave. So off we went. She goes, there was no prep. Everyone was just like, go, Karen, figure it out. They also give her green overalls. They were like, here you go, Karen, put your overalls on. Why? Because she's about to start digging in the frozen dirt and earth under this apartment to try to find the remainder of the 15 or 16 bodies. Here's the thing. They're at this apartment that he lived at before the one where they went and found the bodies in the wardrobe. And he readily admits he buried bodies under the garden. Yeah. And he tells us this is so scary and yeah. so horrible. He was like, well, I was putting the corpses under the floorboards, but eventually there was the smell and the rot and the maggots. And at one stage, there was no room under the floorboards. There were so many bodies there. So he gets this really horrible idea. I'm sorry, everybody. But yeah. his idea is to just start burning the bodies in a way that the neighbors would just think he's, quote, burning rubbish. These dummy, dummy neighbors. They're part of this, too. It's true because, like, burning bodies have to have a smell to it. Not to be yes. disgusting about it, but... And every neighbor is like, yeah, that guy was burning trash all the time. Yeah, remember, he would just be outside peeing at midnight with right. hardly any clothes on, too. Like, lots of red flags with this guy. Lots of them. 
<laughs> it's okay to ask questions, neighbors. It's okay. Karen also cannot get over how frozen the ground was and that they kept making her dig. Her hands hurt. She goes, freezing. we're going to be here a year. <laughs> we're going to be here a year, she says. But Karen says, why hasn't there been this huge outcry of, yeah, my son, my father's missing. It wasn't happening. It wasn't as if they didn't matter. She says it's as if they didn't matter. Of course. Because once again, we're here. It's like vulnerable people and people who are easily, quote, forgotten about. Right. The cops are like, how are we going to start to identify these kids? Clearly, like, no one missed them. So how are we going to figure out who they are? And Nielsen says, go back to my first apartment. Look for a tea chest. You're going to find some body parts. They do it. And they do. They find, like, an intact arm with a hand. They scan the fingerprint of the hand, and they actually get a match. It's crazy. Right. And the match is Stephen Sinclair. He has a small record, some petty crimes, and he was never reported missing. So they tried contacting Stephen's family, and they track them down, and they find Mary, his foster mom. Yeah, and she's saying that, like, we don't get a lot of background on Stephen. I wish we did, but she, like, how long was he in the foster care system? Was he raised in the foster? How long had he been with this particular family we get none of that but like she says that he said that he would love to go to london that he was going to london and my husband says well Stephen, you're silly because it's no a place for a, a boy like you and he says oh but i'm going and he goes to london and like we don't get the sense that his foster family was in touch with him or sort of like checking up on him this is how these kinds of kids can go missing and nobody notices yeah he's described as a drifter yeah. so i get the sense that maybe he didn't leave on the best terms that he was yeah. kind of like all right whatever and they had some big fight or something and never tried to stay in touch i feel like they never lost touch he just wasn't in touch with them when he left he just kind of bailed it's important to remember like this is before the internet and cell phones emailing every day or texting everybody like wasn't a thing so like maybe it was like i'll call you and i get myself all set up there like we don't get that much information but one of the cops does tell us that you have to look at britain at that time there was high unemployment all over the country the consequence of high unemployment is you get people drawn like a magnet to london that they think the streets are paved with gold in fact they're not paved with gold and you get down on your luck Nielsen went round with his vacuum cleaner, swooping up these victims, these vulnerable young men. They weren't able to get work, and that resulted in a lot of these people living on the streets, experiencing homelessness, and it's just creating a vulnerable population that this guy Nielsen was just able to pick from. Absolutely. And then we, in the middle of this, we get audio of him complaining about the curry he's having for lunch with these goddamn mouth sounds. I swear to God, Netflix, how dare you? At one point, he literally takes audio of himself chewing. Right. Let's taste this. Hmm. That's quite pleasant. It is. I mean, that alone. Gas I mean, chamber I know he's, just for that alone. horrible. Yes. Like, he is disgusting in in every way and then he gives himself credit for making the curry better like i hate him but like also he's being served curry in his carpeted prison room while playing a casio keyboard and smoking what is happening and he has the seasoning to make the curry better he's got like a spice rack i know Listen, I'm just saying, if I ever end up in prison, I am going to be the one you want to come to for toilet wine. I'm going to perfect that shit. It's going to be an art. I'm bottling it. Toilet vodka, right? Let's hit hit it hard (laughs) if we're there. Oh, my God. If I'm in prison for something I probably didn't mean to do, I'm going to be hammered the whole time. Didn't mean to do. Uh That's a very, very important distinction. (laughs) 
Back to 1983, 48 hours after his arrest, he's been charged with the death of Stephen Sinclair, and he's appearing in court tomorrow. So this yeah. guy's name has been all over the news for two days straight, but no one has gotten eyes on him. No one has seen him. And neither have we. I thought this was actually really good filmmaking, because it's like, oh, we've been hearing his voice, but we have no idea what he looks like. There was press everywhere, waiting for the first picture of this monster. There's almost a feeling of, it's a horrible way to put it, Sort of disappointment. Could this possibly be the man? Everyone's like, that's him? He's just a mediocre white dude. And I'm like, yeah, they usually are. He's a nerdy, I call him a nerdy D.B. Cooper looking Herb. Herb. I love that you have totally embraced the word Herb. Listen, I understand what that word means to my core. Remember the composite sketch of like the Zodiac Killer and D.B. Cooper? They look like they're twin brothers. Like, because everyone yes. from this time looked like that. This is exactly what this guy looks like. He looks exactly like all of them. Right. And you know, we need to stop doing the round robin of people being like, well, he didn't look like a killer. Uh -huh. We have to stop this. Killers are killers. And we have to. I I know. We must, we must. I demand that we stop it. It's interesting though, because like today, remember like Gabby Petito, she's missing, like everyone knows what she looks like in five seconds. Like all this, right. like we have access to stuff that we didn't have back then. So people would like know the story of these monstrous deeds and just like make the face in their brain to match the deed. And it always ends up being, they all look like Woody Allen. Ah, oh, he's another one. I know. <laughs> I don't, if he gets a fucking spice rack in prison, I swear to God. <laughs> no. No creature comforts for Woody Allen. We get to the part of the documentary where we get the backstory. Like, you know, this always bothers me. But I did think that, like, this guy from the BBC, I'm calling him BBC Bob. He's like, well, we know his last name is Nielsen. We know he's from a place called Aberdeenshire. So I looked up the Aberdeenshire phone book. And there's only one entry, Nielsen. And I make a telephone call to his mother and said, obviously, you know that we've got to do a program on this and she said, well, not today. I don't really feel up to it. I said, well, I just happened to be in Aberdeenshire today and it would be a bit of a shame if we had to come back again. She said, all right then. Guilts the mom into an interview that day. Right. I'm going to call him BBC Bill because his name is Bill. So just, you know, <laughs> do you and I'll do me. I'm going to stick to Bob. Go ahead. The guy from the BBC. It's a <laughs> Bill, Bob, here we are. And Elizabeth Scott, the mother's like, okay, you're right. Come on yeah, in. Yeah, yeah, she, yeah. she makes, she gives him tea and shortbread. <laughs> and I have to say... She's like, this isn't the dentist I know. The dentist I uh -huh. know is as basic as they come. Not a single extraordinary thing about him. I mean, mediocre at best. And that's being generous. And I'm like, Liz, do I like you? I also love that the mom, A, she's an excellent hostess. She got dressed up. She cleaned the house top to bottom. She didn't want to do this sure. interview. But when she when she agreed to do it, she ran a comb through her hair. She cleaned the dishes and the things. She, she ran a vacuum over the carpet. Homemade shortbread. Oh, my God. For the, for, for the journalist who kind of strong-armed and bullied lead his way into her home to talk about her serial killer son. But then she gets a little garbagey because she immediately starts blaming the murders on Dennis's colleagues. I've tried to think what could have gone wrong. And I mean, why the people in London who worked with him, why could they not see something there before this? It's gone on all this time. I believe if he'd been at home, I would have seen something was wrong. What are you talking about, Mom? She goes, well, if, well, if he lived with me, I would have noticed. I would have known <laughs> something was wrong. <laughs> She's kind of coming for the other neighbors, too. Like, how did nobody know that my son was a piece of shit? If he lived with me, I would have known, and I would have told you. I will say, if he was burning bodies in her backyard, I think she probably would have had something to say about it. You know what I mean? Right? Yeah. Come on. 
Oh. Then we get Nielsen audio again, and he's yeah. like, of course, blaming it on the mother right away. He always felt different. We'll get to that. But he was like, you know, low self-esteem. I didn't have a father, which is probably part of all of this. My mom was uh-huh. super cold. Cut to the mom being like, I was a single mother of six just doing my goddamn best. Yeah. And I mean, like, this is the thing that makes me really sad because he's like, when I was about eight or nine, I was first afflicted by that thing called love. It was for another boy with whom I'd never even spoken. Visions of him as seen in school filled my whole consciousness. It was a strange, vibrant, and compelling situation. But the stern moral principles of society and the church were of such a magnitude that my inner joys and longings had to be kept secret from the world. He obviously tries to make the correlation between, like, having to squelch his, like, true self with that being some sort of part of, like, what made him a serial killer, which is totally fucking nonsense. But it is a very sad and lonely existence, and I relate it. Like, it sucks. Right. He talks about how it sucks to be considered a monster based on your genetic makeup, and I'm like, no, I understand that growing up in that way was hard, but, like, you're a monster because you're a murderer. Right. That's why you're a monster, Nielsen. Don't get it twisted. He does seem a little confused about that. and so. We're back at the police station where the cops once again are like, yeah, this guy really won't fucking stop talking. (laughs) He will not stop talking. And so now he knows that he was like McCusker, the cop, wants more information about where he picked up his victims because they were mostly gay bars and mostly in the West End. But now Doug from the Daily Mirror is like, oh, perfect. We'll call him the gay killer. Oh, Oh my my God. God. Then we see a headline that says gay killer Dennis Dennis the the Mincing Menace. Menace. I, like, I know. Dennis the Mincing Menace. We can't forget. Just you have to have gay killer right at the of top course, too, obviously. But like I got I will hand it to them. It's a triple entendre because it's like Dennis the Menace, mincing is in like effeminate, and mincing is in like a cleaver. Like cutting There's shit. There's a lot up. going on in this. There headline. is. It's also way too long. It's but way too long. <laughs> Even Nielsen when he hears this goes, Oh dear. Oh gosh. <laughs> But to your point, we're talking about institutional homophobia at the time. And we're learning, like, look, the gays couldn't be arrested anymore. And I'm like, wow, anymore. I know. Anymore. And also, like, just because you can't get arrested doesn't mean you can't get the shit kicked out of you. Like, people still were not on the side of the gays in the early 80s in London or here. They were horribly mistreated. And uh, totally ostracized by the press and the cops. So now we have the cops and the press on this. So, I mean, it's just a mess, right? And then... Like, I'm not screaming enough. We learn, as Bill from the BBC shouts, he's an ex-copper. Dennis Nielsen is a former cop. Of course he is. And this is where, like, Constable Karen is like... When we found he was a police officer, I thought, that's why he's got away with it for so long. He's a police officer. He's going to be one step ahead. He knew how to get away with this shit. And then we meet Bob. Bob Brenton, detective sergeant. Oh, my God. So he go, he was like, yeah, they wanted to know all about my friend Dennis. And I'm like, your friend Dennis? Former friend, former. I you gotta know. say former when you and say that. I think that he was kind of being like tongue in cheek there because he had like yes. known Dennis on the force and he's describing him as like in his police days. He's like, he never made eye contact. He was a total loner. He wore the uniform, but he never tried to like achieve anything. His heart totally wasn't in it. And it was sort of like Gacy hanging out with the cops. It was like, he was just trying to like learn what to do to get away with murder 
her for forever. And it's so great because we get more audio of Dennis and just completely like this guy, Bob, is totally contradicting it because Bob's like, he was a loner, audio of Dennis. I was popular. Right. You know, Bob's like, he wore, he wore a uniform but didn't really achieve anything. Dennis is like, I chose to resign. Like, it's just the way he he just forms this bullshit narrative. But, you know, a few years later, Bob is called to the scene of this like brutal attack and he describes it. He's like, the living room window had been completely smashed and there's blood everywhere. A young juvenile had been taken from the address to the hospital. And he was just a pale, skinny waif of a kid. If I remember right, he had over 100 stitches. Just for the timeline of it, Bob is saying that, like, this scene happened years before Nielsen killed anyone. So this is sort of like the first major, major, major red flag because Bob really steps up here to the best of his ability right now. Yeah, because he finds out this kid's story, the kid that got the stitches. He said that, like, he met a guy. He had been taken back to this guy's apartment, plied with alcohol. He woke up completely naked. He said this man was coming towards him. And, like, Bob describes it as, like, fight or flight. This kid knew he was about to be murdered, and so he just jumped out the window. He, like, jumped through the window. Threw himself through the window. I mean, the terror that this guy must have been feeling to be like, I'm noping out of here through the glass window. And he just woke up naked. Like, he doesn't even know where he is or what's happening. Totally disoriented. Like, absolutely. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, Bob goes up to Dennis and he's like, Dennis, what the fuck? Like, what what is going on? Like, the bad guy here is Dennis in case that wasn't clear. Right. Yeah, yeah. And Dennis is like, yeah, I don't know. But uh, if you don't have anything to charge me, you got to let me go. So, so that's what he was doing. Like, that's why we're saying that he was getting away with it for as long as he was because he knew to say, like, you don't have anything on me, Bob. What are you going to do? Oh, my God. And that's the other thing. Like, this was like with like the Times Square killer, too, where like we knew that like people treated sex workers terribly, including the cops. But suddenly they get like invested in the case of these like dead sex workers and they start to care. And like that's the situation with Bob here now, too, because Bob suddenly cares about this gay kid that almost got killed. And he calls. He finds his kid's parents and he calls and he wants the parents to do the right thing for the kid, but for other potential victims. And the kid's dad is like, absolutely not. This kid is absolutely not going to court. We're not going to put his face out there publicly. It would bring shame on the family and he refuses to have anything to do with it. And Bob is infuriated. Right, because the family refuses to press charges, so he gets away with it. And Bob tells the parents, Do you realize what is going to happen if you do not bring a prosecution He's going to do this to somebody else. No, they were adamant. I was fuming. You have to understand it's bigger than you and your homophobia right now. We need to protect other people. And he goes, I was fuming. Fuming. And Bob's like, look, he said to Nielsen, you have no idea how lucky you are because the charge would have sent him to prison for life if they actually decided to press charges. So then Bob has (laughs) to type out, quote, an intelligence card. Yeah. And Bob writes. At the top of the card, I typed, in my opinion, This man is a dangerous psychopath. He's a dangerous psychopath. And everyone was like, cool story, Bob, and did nothing. Right. Also, this guy, like, was a cop. Like, don't you have to pass some sort of, like, psychological evaluation to be a cop? No, you should, but no way. (laughs) Is that true, like, to this day? You absolutely should have to. I would be astonished, but maybe not. What do I know? Now we're going to the West End of London, baby. It's the theater district. It's sort of the gay area. One of the cops says, it was a vibe. I was like, look at you, how hip. It was a vibe. (laughs) We see the marquee for Jesus Christ Superstar, you guys. It was the 80s. And McCusker's like, the West End was a vibe. Plenty of action, 
lots of people, a way to get lost. It was just teeming with millionaires to paupers. So the cops get word about this guy named John the Guardsman. Yeah. Nielsen told him about this guy named John. He wore a guardsman hat. And John was a young male sex worker. And the cops are calling him, quote, a rent boy. It is kind of amazing to me the utter shock on all of these cops to not know that there's a such thing as male sex workers. Like, they are all shocked at the idea. I think they're like, shocked at the idea. Uh, <laughs> I think they just don't they just don't uh-huh, want uh-huh. to look right at it. Yeah. But obviously, it's the oldest it's the oldest profession on earth. Like, come on. I mean, and one of the newspapers describes the West End as a flesh market. They're basically saying that like Nielsen could go there and get anything he wanted anytime he wanted and not be noticed at all. Right. The cops are like male sex worker, you say, like survival sex work. Oh my god. So uh-huh. they like they look into this at the station and apparently there are hundreds of them on file. So stop lying to me even today in 2022 right. whenever this was made. Stop playing dumb. If there were hundreds of these male sex workers on file, yeah. someone knew about it. They didn't just like magically get into the system. Give me a break. Yeah, and so like the whole idea is that this guy, John the Guardsman. We were able to identify John the Guardsman as a man called John Hylett. And I spoke to his mother. Hylett had left home of his own accord. He got involved in drugs. And it was quite simply an acceptance that her son had died. And like, this is where it's finally dawning on them that Nielsen was targeting these male sex workers because he knew if they went missing, nobody was going to be looking for them. Right. Or they just assumed like this guy's mother, like, oh, he must have OD'd. Like the the tragedy that I've been dreading actually happened. So it's horrible. You said an expression that is like so true. Like nobody wants to look at this. Like it was right in front of them. Like the male sex work and the abuse of the male sex workers and the murder of the male sex workers was right in front of everybody. But nobody, it's like the same thing thing with the Menendez brothers. Like, they went to prison because people didn't, nobody could look at the idea that, like, men could be abused by their fathers. Yeah. Like, 15 or 16 young men can go missing and get murdered because nobody wants to look at the fact that, like, men pay other men for sex sometimes. Yeah. I don't really care how uncomfortable it makes you. Fix it. It's time. Deal with it. It's time. Look at it. Enough. So let's go five years before the arrest. We meet a guy named Martin and he goes, it was a warm night. I was playing a fruit machine now. <laughs> I was like playing a fruit machine. think it is, girl. Which I don't think is a euphemism, but could be. Well, that's first of all, it's another gay bar yeah. uh, that we just stumbled on. Uh, no, it's like a slot machine, you know, with the cherries. Yeah. It's just like a gambling slot They're machine. They're playing at, at like some little like gambling place in the West End of London called Las Vegas. Oh, <laughs> they have, they have Vegas in the West End? Apparently, apparently gambling is legal there. Who knew? So he's playing the, this little gambling game at the bar. I could see him through the reflection in the machine. He said, you won't win much on that one. I said, oh, no, you tell me. And he said, I think it's just paid out. And he said, um, do you want to come home? That machine just paid out. You won't win anything. Do you want to come home with me? And I'm like, wow, <laughs> that escalated. You know, the thing about it, too, like, I know this is not news to you, but, like, this is how it happens. These guys are all out looking for sex. The hooking up in the meeting happens so quickly. Like, I'm not shocked or scandalized by any of this. Like, it moves really fast in the gay community. When you are cruising and you yeah. have, you're there on a mission. Totally. There's no time to waste. No time to waste. Absolutely no time to waste. It's got to happen now. Let's get down, let's get down to business. Yeah. Consensually. I do with everyone. 
get that like a lot of people who listen to this aren't gay. You know what I mean? And like might need to be reminded. Weird. This is not unusual. What like how quickly this pickup happened is very par for the course. If you're especially if you're at a cruisy bar, like yeah. there are certain bars that you just know, like okay, wait, the, no small talk happening totally. here. Like you're no. hooking up downstairs in the bathroom. I'm looking at you, monster. As soon as the internet was created, we had to like create apps to like cut out the middleman to make it happen even faster. Everybody, the gays right. are on top of it. Again, we got to get down to business. Again, <laughs> consensually with everyone conscious. Exactly. And all adults. Absolutely. So anyway, like they get back to Nielsen's apartment, and like Martin is saying, "Oh, this broke my heart." Martin is like, "He asked me where I came from. He asked me about my family. So he seemed quite caring, and that impressed me. And I thought, ah." Okay, I like you, but I never said it. I thought I like this guy. And I decided I liked this guy. That is how quickly this like young kid let his guard down. These kids are so starved for love and uh, connection that like some dude asks you one or two questions. All of a sudden you're in love with the guy. And this is very true to the older days of our community. Still happens to this day. But like in the 80s and 90s, this was very common. And especially because Martin explains like he wasn't really out to anyone in his life. And yeah. he says, this broke my heart. All the kids seemed to think I was a bit of a joke. And he was just like being his best bedroom and he just wanted to be in the darkness so someone asking him a simple question about like hey where's your family from that he's just like has stars in his eyes and it's so understandable and so sad at the same time they show the animation of him like sitting in his room in the dark because that's where he felt the most comfortable because he didn't have to look at himself like that is real that is very real and it's so sad so we're back to him with nielsen in the apartment right after the the fruit machine which i love by the way You're my little fruit machine. Oh, thanks, girl. <laughs> ding, 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 I said, what's happening? What's happened? And he said, you knocked the fire off the wall. I got water, poured it over the floor, and I left, because I was really quite upset because I thought I'd caused that damage to his flat. Nielsen is saying that he like knocked a space heater off the wall and Martin pours water on it and leaves. And it's only later that he like after all of this comes out about Nielsen that he realizes that like Nielsen was trying to kill him. That basically Martin would have been Nielsen's first victim. Because he's like this also like Martin just feels bad about breaking the space heater or starting a fire and he leaves and Nielsen lets him leave. But he's like that doesn't make sense. It was a warm night. The space heater never would have been on to begin with. I think what's happening here is the timing is very very important because remember Nielsen was drinking straight rum out of a Bacardi bottle like warm Bacardi and giving it to Martin I think now we're gonna learn that he's drugging his victims and I think he's experimenting with doses I think he didn't give Martin enough of a dose to keep him completely knocked out so he woke up I think it was a mistake and I think he wasn't intended to be his first victim just a guess but that seems to be like what's right. going on here. We're back to Constable Karen who wants to remind us it's freezing out. And Her she's hands still are cold. digging. <laughs> yes. And Karen's like, I just want to chime in here. I'm sorry. Yeah. I know I'm a dumb woman with weak arms. I don't know why they gave me the job of digging in the frozen the frozen uh-huh. dirt with my super, super weak, weak arms. Yep. But she goes, they were coming up all the time. It wasn't as if after three or four hours, oh, I found one. It was every couple of minutes. 
a fragment of this, a fragment of that, teeth. Every time she put the pitchfork, which is still weird that she's not using an actual uh-huh. shovel, into the ground, they were constantly finding little bones. And at one point, they find a six-inch femur, which is a thigh bone. Yeah, because at first I was kind of like, maybe he was lying. Nope, it's very real. He wasn't lying. Karen just really wants to come back and be like, this is the nightmare you think it is. Just, <laughs> sorry, just, sorry, didn't mean to interrupt. Just yeah, want to tell no. you this is actually the stuff of nightmares. Continue. I'm so sorry. I'm so but sorry. now we meet a, a guy named Shane. We don't really know who Shane is yet, but he goes, that story was like a horror film had come to the real world. But there's also kind of a strange excitement when something like that happens, you know. There's a macabre attraction to that kind of stuff and you want to know more details. You don't want to know less, you want to know more. But it was also sort of exciting, you know? Shane! Shane's mother, Leslie, goes, of course I was interested. Who was it? And I said, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, isn't it, Shane? (laughs) But, like, it's kind of a sad story. Like, Leslie the mom, Shane is the son. Leslie's describing the scene that one day she gets a knock at the door. It's the cops. They show her a picture and they say, like, do you know this person? And she says, of course. It was Graham, the love of my life. So it was, like, her partner. I don't know if they were married, but it was, like, her partner and the father of Shane and their other children and then they ask her if she knew dennis nelson she's like i wasn't really following the cops were saying that this guy graham was killed by nielsen but also that this guy nielsen was only picking up homeless homosexuals and she's like my husband wasn't gay so like it's not connecting the dots and this is where we get the disconnect between the truth of the matter and what the media was reporting because the media was only reporting that he was like the gay serial killer preying on gay people when really and like this is Leslie's mission is kind of to to say like it was much bigger than that all the people that he killed weren't gay including my husband and her thing it's something we scream about all the time like don't just put them all together they were individuals they were people they were human I don't care if they were runaways or not like they're human beings and something horrible happened to them. So treat them with respect. She says that the press was barbaric. She tells us the story, too, that at some point a reporter is talking to her and says to her, like, hey, do you know the real story about, like, what happened with your husband? And she's like, no. And and the reporter's like, the cops didn't tell you. And she said, no. And he said, it's horrible. Do you want me to tell you? Like, this whole fucking thing is so fucking awful. The fact that the cops didn't tell her, the fact that the reporter knew and decided it was his job to tell her. But essentially... This guy, Nielsen, saw Graham struggling to get a cab. But no cabs have stopped for him because he was staggering all over the place. And Nielsen took him back to his place, where he went behind him and strangled him. And then he sat him in an armchair. For two days, while he went to work, he came back and sat next to him on the settee and they watched TV together. And he'll, like, come home from work and, like, sit and watch TV with Graham's dead body. And then, like, in the end, like, a couple days later, strips the body naked and sexually assaults it. We're not, I'm not getting into it. Yeah, no. But it's, like, this fucking horrible thing that Leslie learns about her husband as told to her by a newspaper reporter. Right. The thing that was really driven home for me here is how, like, sick and sadistic Dennis Nielsen really is. 
to live in a home with a body and like watch television with it and then like yeah. sexually assault a corpse like this man is depraved and the thing is like Jeffrey Dahmer used to do shit like that like Jeffrey Dahmer yeah. was all about like owning the bot, like the dead body so it couldn't leave him or whatever it is like obviously it's very sick and very sad but it is interesting to note that like these serial killers do have like commonalities like that yeah they're all fucking sick girl I we know. hate them all <laughs> No, I know. The it's worst. just like. <laughs> yeah, no. Talk, yeah, it's, it's so bizarre when you're like, I've never heard anything like that. That's keeping me up at night. And then you're like, wow, this is familiar in a totally <laughs> different documentary about something I else. Know. Like the world is scary. I'm never leaving my house. I know. I know. <laughs> Russ Coffee's here. He's a journalist. Russ who? Did I do it again? <laughs> Russ Coffee. He's doing the Russ laundry. Russ Coffee. I, <laughs> it's my favorite Ugh. thing. I love it so much. Anyway, sorry. Back to Russ Coffee. Russ the journalist now. I'm never going to say his last name again. He reads that Dennis Nielsen, a serial killer, is writing his autobiography in prison. He wants to get a piece of this, so uh-huh. he just appeals to the ego. He's like, I want to interview this guy for the paper. And I was intrigued. So then I started writing to Nielsen, saying, Dear Mr. Nielsen, I believe your book will become a landmark work of criminology and I'd like to cover it for a serious British broadsheet newspaper. He lies and says he's writing a book about Dennis, but really it's like this expose article in the newspaper. I don't understand. Like, I know that it took a long time for us to get laws on the books in the United States about criminals not being able to, like, sell the movie rights and, like, make money off the shit that they did. How is this guy allowed to write a book? You know what I mean? That seems wrong to me. Yeah, but also, Nielsen thinks he's in business with Russ. No, no, no. Russ is using him. Like, he's just like, oh, finally, someone's interested in my story. Like, no, no, no. Russ is using you because he played to the ego. And two days later, you're like, here are my notes. Here are my audio tapes. Let's do this, Russ. Russ is like, all right, thanks. It's kind of amazing. And you would think with all these trash reporters, I can't believe that Russ was the only one that reached out. Jesus. Seriously. This is where we also see another fucking picture of Nielsen in prison, lounging in his underwear, in his carpeted cell playing the keyboard. Number one, who took that picture? Why does this look Mm -hmm. like the funnest, happiest day of this guy's life? He's smiling ear to ear. What is going on with English prisons? And can I go there? Can I go and take a week in in an English prison as a vacation? For a quick little reset? Just a little. Just a couple couple of Casio keyboards and some weed and you'll be good to go. I have to hope that at the very least that carpet smells like shit. Yes. Oh God, a prison carpet? You know what? You got what you deserve, Nielsen. See? There we go. There's that silver lining. (laughs) So it's eight months since Nielsen was arrested. And by the time of the trial, they say they've identified a total of seven victims. We found out that some of them were homeless men. Some of them were gay, but not all of them. They were just guys who were drifting through. But there was one connection. Nielsen knew that if they were to go missing, no one would notice any time soon. If they went missing, nobody would notice anytime soon that they were gone. But then we also see their mothers crying on the news. So which one is it? Well, you know what, though? I think this is also common. Like, I think when your son comes out and or doesn't come out because he feels like he can't and they run away and five years later you find out they're dead, you start to think about all the things you would have done differently. You know what I mean? Of course. And you're sad and you cry about it. Love your fucking children. I mean... Jesus Christ. It's, I, I feel like we don't ask for much, but every week I'm yep. proven wrong. I know. Because it seems to 
be very, 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 very difficult for too many people. Just too love many. your kids. You know what I mean? Just love your kids. You know? They don't all have to die and end up under a porch for you to be sad and realize you miss them and that you would have done things differently. It's okay to love them in real yeah. time. So it's Monday, October 24th, and like it's like the trial, right? We're going to Central Criminal Court, which one of these journalists tells us is the most famous court in the world. Never heard of it, girl. Yeah, okay. I was like, I thought Judge Judy's court was the most famous court in the world. <laughs> and honestly, why didn't she oversee his trial? I would have watched every right. second of that. Those for, Maybe that's the most important court right. in the world. <laughs> Correct. What Judge Judy says goes, and I don't make the rules. I follow them. <laughs> But they say, like, everyone is expecting him to plead guilty. The journalists are like, oh, if he pleads guilty, we're not going to have anything to write about. Nope, he's not going to let you down, journalists. He pleads not guilty. Yeah, well, he wants the attention. And, of course, it was a, it was the, and people describe it as theater. It was a circus. And that's exactly what he wants. Of course he's not going to plead guilty. And then I know Nielsen you're going to say... He wants yet another fucking medal, and I I'm know. telling him once again, I have zero medals nor fucks to yeah. give. Nielsen's alleged to have told the police, I've taken a lot of people back to my flat, and I haven't killed them all. He wants a medal for not killing everyone he brought back to his apartment. Okay, Leslie? He goes, look, I lured a lot of people to my house, but I didn't kill all of them. It doesn't account for anything. You're being real judgy, Leslie, and I don't like it. I didn't kill all of them. Okay, Leslie? All right, Leslie, back off. Oh, my God. But the thing Says is... Nielsen. So the prosecutors, like, they want to fucking get this guy, obviously. And, like, in order to do that, they say they need to prove premeditation. And in order to do that, they need survivors to testify. And in order to do that, they need survivors to trust them, which, of course, they fucking don't because of all the fucking decades of brutality. And I'll tell you, we'll get there at the end because a lot of these guys actually do testify and it ends up being so empowering for them, yes. which is so amazing. But basically, like, in order to prove premeditation, we get the story about this guy named Carl Soder. And it's the same story. Like, he, you know, Nielsen picked him up at a pub, brought him back to his house, drugged him with booze. Drinking warm Bacardi warm out of the Bacardi. bottle. You know that wasn't from the freezer. No. That's just warm Bacardi <laughs> out of the bottle. I cannot. Also, warm Bacardi. Were they out of vodka in England? Jesus. But, you know, he says that, like, as he started to pass out, of course, he doesn't know he's passing out. He's like, I was very sleepy and we were getting cozy. And he, he told me to watch out for this zipper to this sleeping bag. So, of course, this guy, Carl, wakes up in a fucking bathtub where Nielsen is, like, trying to drown him. And for some reason, Nielsen, like, lets him live. We learn later that that some reason is because there wasn't any more room under the fucking floorboards. The gacy of it all. It's so chilly. Like, whenever I hear things like that, obviously, it's the worst thing a person can do to not let someone go, right? Yeah. But whenever I hear that they just, like, on a whim let someone go, it's just like... They just decide I know. willy-nilly all the time. It's so scary. It's like, I feel like I dodged that bullet. You know what I mean? It's totally. so scary to think about, like, Carl could have been anybody, any one of those other victims, right? And Carl says he doesn't know what to do. He's super confused. He can't really remember because he's been drugged, but he knows he wakes up in a sleeping bag in a freezing cold tub. Like, he was being drowned. Like, he yeah. knew he was going to die. The cops didn't believe him. They called him a silly little drama queen. And he says it's so heartbreaking. He's like... So I went to the police. They didn't believe me. They didn't take any notice. I was just a silly little poster, a drama queen. And I thought, well, maybe they're right. They know what they're doing. They know their job. It was me. I imagined it. It must be me. I must be wrong. 
And so, like, when Carl is called to testify and Martin is called to testify, of course, neither one of them wants to do it. But Carl has, like, had time to mull this over. And he's like, all my life, everyone's made me feel like nothing. Everyone's made me feel less than, made me feel like I have no worth. And I'm going to go fucking testify against this piece of shit and get him put away to prove that I'm worth something. And Martin does the same thing. So Carl and Martin found the strength in what happened to them almost, you know, like it gave them this motivation. And Martin goes, I feel confident. It's lovely. And I'm like, oh, my God, Martin. So I find that kind of freedom. I can express myself a bit more. I don't have to hide what I feel all the time. It's lovely. The act of getting on the witness stand in front of the world, being covered by the press, like they're so far out of the closet now, they couldn't go back if they wanted to. And that was what they were afraid of. But then they ultimately realized that that was freedom. Right. Right. That's how it happens. It's like, you know, back in the 60s, there was always this push to like, come out, come out to your friends, come out to your family. Like, that's how we all gain acceptance, but that's how you gain freedom in your own life. And it's kind of amazing to see these like, kind of quiet, like timid men realize their own power. It's it's amazing to see. It's beautiful. And it's also like, Russ, the journalist, reminds us. Society didn't create Nielsen. That's what he'd like you to believe. But we've still got to take responsibility for creating the prejudice society that enabled him to kill over and over again. Society allowed him to get away with it for so long. You know, like the way the way we treat vulnerable people and gay people is just horrible. And I have to say, if what he did didn't inconvenience someone like blocking a drain, we wouldn't be here. Like the reason he was caught had nothing to do with his victims. Right. It was because someone needed to call a plumber. Right. You know what I mean? Like, we have to do better. Yeah. Ultimately, at the end of the trial, 10 jurors agreed to dissented. I looked this up. I was like, wait, that's not a unanimous jury. The way the system works in England, a judge can't accept, like, a majority verdict right away. They have to, like, make the jury try and try and try to come to a unanimous decision. But ultimately, if they can't, the judge can accept a majority decision, which is what happened in this case. Ten agreed, two dissented, and, like, he's locked up and they throw away the key. Yeah. Thank God. Wow. That was a close one. Speaking of dodging a bullet. Oh, my God. (laughs) I mean, in the end, they're only able to identify eight of his victims. Right. And their names are Graham Allen. Malcolm Barlow. Martin Duffy, who was here with us. Stephen Holmes, who was 14. Ugh. John Howlett. Stephen Sinclair. Kenneth Ockenden, I believe it is. Ockenden or Ockenden. And William Sutherland. Yeah. And it basically ends with Leslie... The mom quoting Don Draper being like, I don't think about you at all. Fuck off. I'm done. I hate you. I'm like, Leslie, you and me, girl, I'll buy you whatever you want. You want tea? You want tea and scones? It's on me. Whatever you want, Leslie. I got you. Oh, my God, girl. We did the Nielsen tapes. Is that what this is called? Yeah. Memories of a Murderer, the Nielsen tapes. Holy shit. Oh, you guys... Come see us on tour. All right, I'm doing it in order this time. Okay. Chicago, Boston, Seattle, Los Angeles. Tickets are going really fast. We're covering Class Action Park. It's going to be really fucking funny. Come see us at Obsessed Fest. It's us and Ellen and Joey and Rabia and Bob Ruff and Payne Lindsay and Alexis Linklater. Who else? Maggie and Let's Go to Court. Wait, go to ObsessedFest.com. It's all there, right? Exactly. That's where you can get your tickets. Girl, what are we doing next? Oh, everyone pull over because I have two words for you. Oh, God. Tinder swindler. (laughs) 
Now I've not seen this yet. It is wild. It's very long, so we're doing a double drop. It's two hours, and there's uh-huh. way too much to talk about. So we're doing Tinder Swindler. You get them in two eps. Oh, my God. All right, so you guys stay tuned for the trailer for Tinder Swindler, our hilarious outtakes. And that's it. Yeah, not a problem. Don't, I wouldn't worry about it. I wouldn't be too concerned. <laughs> Bye. Bye. We love you. You can find a bit of everything on Tinder, but one little swipe can change your life. I only miss you when it rains. When I first talked with Simon, immediately we had a bond. He was smart and funny and very impulsive. I shared my whole heart with him. And then he asked me if I wanted to travel with him on a private jet. I was like, shit. He took me to a five-star hotel. He said we had a special connection. It felt like stepping into a movie. And then in the middle of the night, he said there was something he wants to tell me. He said he has threats against him. He needs our cash. His life depended on me. That's when police tell me. The man I love was never real. Everything's a lie. And he describes this room like the walls were painted black and Bob's like, wasn't to my taste. But which (laughs) wasn't really my color. I'm like, speak for yourself, Bob. Put on a London fog raincoat. Even though it's not really fog. That's a little fun fact. It wasn't fog. What wasn't fog? The fog. (laughs) In London. It wasn't fog. It was from that big fire, right? I don't know what we're talking about. All right. It doesn't matter. Who cares? (laughs) 